Well, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 this morning. And if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that should be on page 728. 728. This is one of the passages in the Bible. The last eight verses are some of the most disputed in the Bible. Uh, There's something like 10 or 12 different approaches to these verses. So obviously, I'm not going to have time to be able to hunt down every rabbit hole. Uh, I'll seek to lay out the view that probably most of you are familiar with, uh, and then I will argue what I think is the best way to walk through this text. Uh, But happy to give you a reading list if you want to dig into these things further as time goes on. But we will go ahead and read through the whole chapter. By the way, if you got a bulletin um, this morning, in the midst there should have been an insert that has the last four verses from the CSB. When we get to those verses in the sermon, I'm going to use this translation because I think it's a very good English translation of these verses. But I'm going to read through the whole chapter so we get a feel for what this chapter is laying out for us. So Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. We, you, have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us the great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, All this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. 
Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will rebuilt, be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. Wars will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This is the word of the Lord. What has been said that perhaps no single man is more responsible for the distortion of Christian truth in our age than the man Charles Grandison Finney. Finney was so convinced uh, that we had the power within ourselves to bring about revival and change to the world that in the 1840s or 50s, he said this, quote, if the whole church had gone to work 10 years ago bringing about revival, there might not now have been an impenitent sinner in the land. The millennium would have fully come into the United States before this day. If the church will do her duty, the millennium may come in this country in three years. That is a bold claim. But such was Finney's boldness. In contrast, however, to Finney, and his belief in the radical ability of humans to accomplish such extravagant things, we have been reading the book of Daniel, which again and again and again has shown us that God is the true sovereign, that his plan is unfolding precisely as he planned it, that he is the one who is in charge of the nations, and yet... Although God's plan is perfect, eternal, decreed in eternity past, he uses means. Uh, he used the means of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to crush Jerusalem and Judah and exile them. And then he used the means of Cyrus and Persia to crush Belshazzar and Babylon. 
Well, this morning's passage holds that same tension from the eternal, unchanging, prophesied-beforehand plan of God, and yet his use of means to work out his plan. In particular, Daniel's prayer is a means that God uses for unfolding his plan. And so the sermon title for this morning is Unbelievably Answered Prayer. And we'll walk through this sermon under four points. Understanding, praying, purposing, and covenanting. The the argument from this text is this. A life marked by confessing sin to God is necessary to experience God's decreed act of forgiveness. One more time. A life marked by confessing sin to God is necessary to experience God's decreed act of forgiveness. Notice the tension. God decreed his act of forgiveness in eternity past. Christ was crucified from the foundations of the earth. And yet, it requires a life of confession. Well, our first point is basically going to set the biblical background. Uh, I had Jeff read from two Old Testament passages which are deeply connected. They both talked about the 70 years that we read here in the first three verses of Daniel 9. Daniel was reading the Bible. He was reading from Jeremiah the prophet, and he learned of 70 years. And what's fascinating is, he says, in the first year of Darius. Now, I've argued that Darius and Cyrus are probably, possibly the same person. Whether they are or not, it doesn't matter. The first year of Darius and the first year of Cyrus is the same year. So however you do the math or put the people together. And we read from 2 Chronicles chapter 36 that in the first year of Cyrus, he sent out his decree to send Judah back to rebuild the temple. That took place in 538 B.C. And in that passage, the inspired author of Chronicles said that the 70 years of exile prophesied by Jeremiah had been fulfilled. So, fulfilled, 538 B.C. That's what Chronicles says. Likewise, Daniel understands this passage the same way. Uh, Because we we read in our call to worship from Jeremiah 29, one of those passages. And in that passage it says, when that exile is over, then you will pray to me and you will find me. And that's precisely what Daniel does in this prayer. So both both Daniel and both the author of Chronicles understand the 70 years to have been fulfilled. Right? Right? Fair enough, everything's clear so far. However, there's one problem. Jeremiah prophesied 70 years, and yet they were only in exile for 67 or 68 years. No matter how you do the math. 605 is when they were exiled, 538 is when they came back. So here's the point. We don't get to come to the Bible and demand of it a mathematical precision that we Westerners and modern Westerners tend to have. That's not what the Bible's doing. And to hammer this point home, that's why we read from Zechariah. Now, you can find it in Zechariah 1 or in chapter 7 that we read from. But Zechariah is writing some 20 years after Daniel. So 20 years after Daniel 
and the author of Chronicles have said the 70 years are fulfilled. And if you go back and read Zechariah 7.5, he says, these 70 years, meaning he still sees them as an ongoing reality. So not only are the 70 years not literal, they are clearly symbolic of something else. Well, what are they symbolic of? That's the question. And my argument would be this, is that 70 years were symbolic of the amount of time that Judah was going to be in as exile. And at the end of that exile, the 70 years were over. And they physically returned to the land. But they remained spiritually exiled. That's why you have those last three prophets in your Old Testament. They're the post-exilic prophets. They're the ones who prophesied after they came back into the land. And Zechariah prophesies, we're still in the 70 years. Why? Because you people refuse to finish building the temple. Which means that, yeah, God put you back in Jerusalem, but you couldn't care less about God. You couldn't care less about finishing the temple where his presence is to dwell with his people. So while you may be physically returned from exile, spiritually you're still in exile. That's what he's saying. That's why the text is being used that way. So again, we, we have our modern tendency. We love nice, neat storylines. We love mathematical precision. We calculate everything out to at least the second decimal point. But that's not what Daniel is doing or Jeremiah is doing. Rather, they're speaking about this time of exile. And our job when we come to the Bible is to understand it. That word has visual significance. We literally stand under it. It tells us how to read it. We don't stand over it and impose a system upon the Bible. The Bible gives us its system. And right here, at the beginning of this very disputed chapter, it shows us the numbers here aren't meant to be taken with a wooden, literal precision. That's not how they were written. That's not how they were understood by the inspired authors of the Bible. So that's the understanding that we need to show up to this text. And that was Daniel's understanding. And his understanding led him to pray, just as God had prophesied through Jeremiah that he would pray. One more time, listen to this prayer in verses 4 through 19. One of the most glorious prayers in the Bible. I know it's long, but listen again. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your laws and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. 
you have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done in Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Again, in obedience to what Jeremiah prophesied was going to happen, Daniel reads Jeremiah and responds in prayer. Notice the tension. God prophesied it was going to happen. He decreed it before time. This will happen. And yet, Daniel does it. Not because he's a robot, but because he longed to. He was moved by reading Jeremiah, seeing the sinfulness of him and his people. God declared it nearly 100 years earlier, and Daniel read and longed to pray. God's plan unfolds perfectly, but he uses human means. And what a prayer it is. Again, this is one of the most instructive prayers in the Bible. I would encourage you to read this section a number of times a year. It will reteach you how to pray, as hopefully we will get to spend some time thinking this morning. Did you catch how Daniel begins his prayer? I read the Lord's Prayer as part of my pastoral prayer because that's how Daniel begins his prayer, by hallowing, adoring God. As he, both in our services here on Sunday morning and at the evening service, we seek to follow the biblical patterns of prayer, that there are different kinds of prayer the Bible gives us. Maybe you've, you've heard of the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, right? Adoration, or I, I use the word prayers of praise. The idea of a prayer of praise is it's literally just adoring God, praising God for who he is. It's to take a moment and just pause and look and behold the splendor of God and who he is in himself. And that's what Jesus taught us. Our Father in heaven, the transcendent God, hallowed be your name. He's just marveling at who God is. And Daniel goes on, he's the great and awesome God. The one who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. All of our prayers should really begin with a hollowing, with an element of praise. Because it reorients us. 
contrary to what our world tells us and the Disney princess characters, the world doesn't revolve around us. It stops us in our tracks and says, no, no, no. I am here because of the holy God created all things. And so we just pause to marvel at him. We sit in awe of who he is. All prayer should begin there, at least for a moment of it, as Daniel does here. And then he moves on after being confronted with thoughts of the holiness of God in reading his word and the prophecy of what God said was going to happen. Daniel then is confronted with his sinfulness in contrast with God's holiness. And so he prays a prayer of confession. Did you notice he includes himself with the confession? Now, if you've been reading Daniel, he's almost like perfect. At least, you know, in the nine accounts of his life, you don't have any recorded sin, but he doesn't set himself off. He confesses the sin with his people. We, he says, uh, giving us exactly what Paul would tell us later, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Daniel's not a special case. So he confesses sin with his people because he knows that there's sin in him too. And, and friends, I would just say, that this is where the Christian life begins, with the recognition that we are all sinners, all those who have and continue to fall short of the glory of God. And though God is merciful and gracious and forgiving, we remain those who are so often and so easily entangled in sin, and as Daniel prays, covered in shame. You see, friends, apart from this central biblical foundation found so much in this prayer of confessing sin to God, there is no such thing as biblical Christianity. And this is something we need to come back to again and again. There's a story told of a pastor making a visit to a hospital, and he was, he was making his way through the ward, and he met one gal who was suffering deeply, and she cried out, I just want to die. I just want to die. And not having known her, he's he said to her, he said, well, if that is how you feel, then might I encourage you to start praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. She snapped out of her pain for a moment and said, I'm not a sinner. And if you knew me, you'd know that. Dale Ralph Davis responds, someone like that can't even begin to scratch at the screen door of the kingdom of God. Because one of the primary marks of a Christian is that he or she continually mourns over our sin. Or as one theologian put it well, what distinguishes us from the world is not that we're less wicked, but that by the grace of God, we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and then to confess our sin. See, the church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. And where confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. So Christian, let me ask you, how often are prayers of confession found on your lips? I mean, biblically speaking, the idea of a Christian who doesn't regularly, continually confess sin is just an oxymoron. It doesn't work. There's no such thing as a growing, abiding Christian who doesn't continue to grow and deepen and see their need to confess sin to God in prayer. See, a growing Christian is so because they're growing closer to God. 
And the closer you get to the holy God, the more amazed you are to see the sin which so easily abides. So this is the first part of the argument. We see a life marked by confessing sin to God is necessary to experience God's decreed act of forgiveness. So Christian, if confession of sin is lacking in your life, the question you should probably ask yourself is this. Are you growing closer to God? Because if you grow closer to God, you will see. I use the example of in the mall where there used to be malls. Malls are kind of a dying thing, right? You go to the malls and the big cosmetic counters with the like two billion like candle power lights that they put on there and the ultra reflective mirror meant to show you every possible flaw. If the mirror at the cosmetic counter shows you the flaws, friends, getting near the thrice holy God shows so much more. And by the way, friends, this is why we regularly include prayers of confession as a part of our worship service. It's to train us and remind us this is the heartbeat of what a Christian does. It's one who grows in confession of sin. Well, that's the first six or so verses of his prayer, and then he circles back to confession later. But then in verses 11 through 14, Daniel connects his confession of sin, why he does it, to God's faithfulness. You see, God had poured out the curses of the Mosaic Covenant upon them. If you want to go read more about these curses of the Mosaic Covenant, you can read Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And God had told them in advance precisely what was going to happen. And Daniel sees that. And so he, knowing God's word, praying through God's word, thinking about it, says, Lord, this is exactly what you told us was going to happen if we didn't continue in confession. And it has happened. And you are just and right for doing this, for bringing these curses, for, for bringing the temple down and the city down and exiling us away. See, Daniel doesn't respond in indignation. Now he responds in the recognition that God was righteous and they were the ones who had failed. So finally in verse 15, we get the petition. The first 11 verses of the prayer is just praise and confession. Only now do you get the petition in verse 15. And the petition is still based on and grounded in and flowing from who God is and his name. He prays that God would turn away his righteous anger on the basis of God's name. That he'd set his, his name on them, or you might say God's reputation as the one who delivered them and, and put his name on his people and called them to himself. Well, Daniel's praying, God, restore us, not because we deserve it, but because you are a holy God and you've called us as your people. Again, Dale Ralph Davis is helpful. He says, Daniel teaches us that Yahweh's reputation should be the driving concern of our prayers. Our petitions should be sprinkled with the incense of pleading his honor. I love that. And he gives three examples. He says, as if praying to the Lord, what honor will it bring you, Lord, if that son of mine is converted? So, Lord, for your honor and for your glory, would you convert my wayward son? He says, what, what praise will it bring to you, Christ, if my marriage is renewed? So, Lord, for your glory and your praise, would you renew my marriage? 
And what credit to Jesus' name would it be if a saint can walk through the hardest troubles of life and yet grow stronger and sweeter in the faith? Lord, for your sake, for your reputation, let it be so. Friends, that is how we should pray. A prayer then, even the petition from Daniel, it flows from a deep understanding of God, of who he is in his nature, his character, and for what he has done. See, far from being the, the magic eight ball that you shake up or the genie in the bottle, prayer is how Christians approach God first in adoration and in confession and thanksgiving and finally in supplication. So naturally, we should be those regularly praying in this way. So friends, I would just say, if, if these elements are not a regular part of your devotional and prayer life, I think we're missing so much of what it is that God is calling us to do in walking with him. Now I know, not every passage of scripture wells up in your heart like springs of praise. Go read the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles, a bunch of begets and a bunch of lists of soldiers. That's not always the best kindling for praise. I get it. But friends, let me ask you, when was the last time that your devotional life just led you to pause and marvel at God? Does it happen often? Does it happen ever? Friend, if you, if you seem to be lacking in awe of God, of doing what Daniel does here, of reading a passage in Jeremiah and just saying, look at this God, I must pray to him then I would encourage you, don't leave here today without talking to another brother or sister. I'd be happy to speak with you, but grab another Christian. Read the Bible together and, and just do so focusing on who God is. Maybe grab a copy of J.I. Packer's Knowing God and look up the scripture references, read it with a friend, and just be set back on your heels again at the glory of our God. Because it is of all those things that Daniel prays that he gets to the, the sharp edge of his prayer in verse 19. Lord hear, Lord act, for your name's sake do not delay. It's because of who he, he knows who God is that he's able to pray this way. And that final plea is what drives the rest of this chapter. If you don't understand that verses 20 through 27 flow entirely from this prayer, our tendency is going to be to get these verses wrong. That's why the name of the sermon is Unbelievably Answered Prayer. It's an answer to Daniel's specific prayer request. So with that, we come to our third point, purposing. Let's look at verses 20 through 24 again. So while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to God, to the Lord my God, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now I'll read verse 4 from this page, if you have it. 
70 weeks, or sevens as the NIV has it, are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place or one. We'll come back to that. Again, this section opens with a reminder that Daniel is interrupted in prayer and Gabriel comes because of his prayer. Everything turns on the prayer. God had told Jeremiah, my people, when they come, when, they, when the 70 years are up and Babylon has been wrecked and, and my people are going to head back, my people will pray to me and Daniel prays and I will respond to them. And God responds by sending Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel comes to Daniel and he says to him, you are highly esteemed, one translation says, maybe precious is the better translation. Other English versions say treasured or deeply loved. God's people are treasured, deeply loved. And this a little aside, little little point, I think, which is important for us to consider. Have you ever thought about why things are valuable? Why things are precious? You see, there's nothing intrinsically valuable about gold, platinum, or diamonds, other than that people want them. So, so the valuers create the value. Is the laws of economics, right? Supply and demand. But that does raise some interesting questions. I wonder if you've thought much about how our modern world has such a confused understanding on the value of human life. Let me give you an example. The vast majority of babies with Down syndrome are aborted these days. And yet, recently, there have been a couple of gals with Down syndrome who are being profiled and platformed as models because they're part of the disabled community. See, on the one hand, the world has this, that's not a life worth living. And on the other hand, at the same time, it's we need to platform and profile these people. Well, which is it? Are people with Down syndrome valuable or not? Well, friend, maybe if, if you're not a Christian and you're visiting with us today, let me tell you clearly, for Christians, the answer is unequivocally yes. All people are valuable because God is the person who values them, creating them in his image. And so I, I hope that you see the rather confused nature of the way the world values things and people. I hope you see the inconsistency there. I'd love to speak with you about it more and explain why it is only the Christian worldview can truly explain how it is that all people are precious and treasured because they're those made in God's image. Well, getting back to the text, uh, not only does Gabriel respond to Daniel's prayer in verse 24, but he gives us six purpose clauses. Those twos, the six times it says two, it's, these are the purposes that God is going to accomplish in this period of time. Uh, and, and on that little piece of paper, you can see it lines up the six twos, which makes it, makes it nice for us, okay? So, if you read these six things just as they are, and you don't bring any other baggage, any other theological thoughts, you just try and let the text speak, just think through these six things with me. To bring the rebellion to an end. 
to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint a most holy, holy one or holy place. See, friends, these six things could really quite easily just be talking about Jesus, about what he did in his person and work. I mean, the first three are negative, and they could be wrapped up with Jesus dying for rebellion and transgression, as other translations put it. Uh, see, one level, friends, Jesus put a stop to sin. For those who are in Christ, every sin that they have and will commit has been put a stop to. It's been paid for in Christ in his perfect death for them. Paul will say no one can bring a charge against God's elect. And certainly he atoned for sin, did he not? Uh, positively then, the three positive sides, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, who dwells with us. The one who restored God's presence to his people and through whom sins are forgiven. Those who are justified have been declared eternally righteous. There's nothing that takes away that justification. Their eternal righteousness has been brought into time. That's what the doctrine of justification is, by the way. It's that our last day declaration of who we are is now realized in time. And here we are declared righteous because of what Jesus has done for eternity. Everlasting righteousness. Well, to seal prophecy, uh, to seal, it can, it can mean to confirm the validity of it. Uh, in the old days, you put your seal on something, say, this is really mine, I'm confirming this is true. So prophecy being fulfilled, being proved true. I'm reminded of Paul's phrase in 2 Corinthians 1.21, for all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And finally, the line 24. Uh, the Hebrew, again, I said it reads, to anoint a most holy. That's all it says. Uh, and that's why the English translations will go from most holy one to most holy place. But either way, it makes perfect sense to read that that's Jesus. Jesus clearly is the most holy one. And in John 1.14, it says he tabernacled amongst us. In John 2, he says he's the true temple who we rebuilt three days with his resurrection. So Jesus is both the anointed holy one and holy place where we have access to God. So, so we see then, without bringing in all sorts of other things, it seems at one level it's really simple to read these six things and just say, this is God's unbelievable answer to Daniel's prayer. That through the person and work of Christ, sin is finally dealt with. And God's people are restored into his presence, declared righteous by what he's done. Because he's atoned for sin. At one level, those of us on this side of the cross, that shouldn't be all that challenging to see. However, as I said, this is one of the most disputed passages in the Bible. And so when that verse 24 opens up and it says 70 weeks or seven sevens, this is where the difficulty comes in, in all the different views. Because some would say no, that this cannot be about this because those seven seventy-sevens or 70 weeks need to be understood, as they would argue, in a literal way. And so here's the argument that maybe many of you are familiar with. Uh, 15 years ago, for the first time in Bethany's history, this little tight phrase was added to the doctrinal statement 
which says that the last seven is the seven-year great tribulation. Anybody familiar with this one, right? The seven-year great tribulation, 70 weeks of Daniel. Well, here's it in a nutshell. I'm going to outline it for you in a nutshell. So the 77s, they say, is a roadmap for God's people Israel for the rest of time. And they would say the first 69 weeks or 69 sevens get us up to Jesus, the Messiah, who's cut off. And then they say there's been a pause that's put. And there's a gap that's added, which is the clock is still ticking. It's about 2,500 years now since Daniel prophesied this. And the gap's still going. But that pause is going to be brought to an end. And then you'll have the final seven of the Great Tribulation, the literal seven-year Great Tribulation. Okay? Uh, the gap is because we need the church age and God going back to dealing with Daniel's people of Israel and many dear, dear Christians hold this view. Some of my dearest friends and mentors hold this view. This is clearly within the bounds of orthodoxy. If you hold this view, God bless you. We're going to disagree. So what? God bless you. But what I want to say is, I don't think that view is as literal as my friends want to say it is. There's nothing in this text that says years. There's nothing in the text that says there's 70 weeks of years. That's from outside. We've brought that in. There's nothing in this text that says that there's a gap between the 69th and 70 week, let alone a 2,500-year gap. There's just nothing here that says that. Rather, for those of us who read the first three verses of this chapter and saw how 70 was clearly not used in a literal way, it seems like we shouldn't force the end of the chapter to be literal when the beginning isn't. Moreover, if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you probably have heard the story where Peter, feeling rather good about himself, said, so Jesus, how many times should I forgive my enemies? Like maybe, you know, seven times? Thinking, that's a lot. And Jesus says, no, how about 70 times seven? As some old English translations translate it. Well, I don't know a Christian on the face of the earth who says, okay, so the 491st time, that's it, you're done. I mean, I know parents could probably do it with their kids, but uh, just nobody reads it that way. We all know intuitively, instinctively, seven is the number of completion. And what Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. The, the perfect number of forgiveness is you just keep on forgiving. We just know that. So I don't see any reason why we need to try and make this text fit into a particular system. So with all the respect in the world to my friends who might disagree with me, again, God bless you, you're free to disagree with me, uh, I just don't see it. So my goal for this last point is this, I just want to walk through the text, keep our finger in the text, and hopefully see how this is the fulfillment of Daniel's prayer specifically what he prayed for was that sin would be dealt with and God's presence would be restored to his people. So with that, we come to the last point, covenanting. Uh, again, I'm going to be reading from the CSB, this little piece of paper here. If you follow along, there's two places where I want to tweak it, but for the most part, it's a very helpful translation. So verses 25 through 27, one more time. Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or sevens. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. 
after those 62 weeks, so after 69 weeks total, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the sanctuary, of the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war, desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple until the decreed desolation is poured out on the desolator. Gotta love that last verse. It's just so crystal clear, is it not? Well, let's see if we can try and unpack this a little bit. So first, the question is this. Know this from the issuing of the decree. What decree is that? Is it God's decree? Is it Cyrus's decree? Is it Artaxerxes' decree? We don't know. The text doesn't say. So if you're going to nail that down really tightly, God bless you, but I can't go there because the text doesn't say. It could be any one of those. Grammatically, there's no reason to tie it down much tighter than that. There's a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Could be God's, could be a human decree that God is working through, but that's all we know. But we read that from this decree until Jerusalem's restored and rebuilt, an anointed one, notice the CSB, Capital A, capital O, anointed one. Uh, NASB, I think, is even better. The Messiah, it's really clear. It's the Meshiach, that's the word in Hebrew. The Messiah, comma, the ruler. This is what's the fancy grammatical term is called apposition. It's when you say one thing and you say it exactly again, but with a little more information. We might say sunny and warm. You're saying this day sunny and warm, right? You're just filling out the same thing. So the anointed one is also the ruler. And this anointed one ruler will come after seven weeks and 62 weeks, where it seems it, meaning Jerusalem, will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. So there's going to be like this seven sevens period, and then 62 sevens period, and then this anointed one, this ruler is going to come. And during those first two periods, they're going to rebuild Jerusalem, but it's going to be tumultuous. And that's precisely what ne Nehemiah and Ezra tell us. Uh, there's this trouble brewing when they try to go back and rebuild things. So again, so far, so good. Then we come to verse 26. After the 69 weeks, or after the 7 and 62, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be cut off. Uh, this verse says, and will have nothing. I prefer the translation, but not for himself, which should bring Isaiah 53 to mind. It's saying this anointed one, this Messiah dies as a substitutionary atonement. He dies, but not for himself. No, like a lamb who is led away, who bears the sins of many. That's the picture here. And that's why the vast majority of people uh, on, on all views, hold that 26, the first part of 26, is clearly dealing with Jesus, with his life and his death in place of his people. The difficulty comes is, then it says, the people of the coming ruler. Now, other views will say that's a different person. But just look at the text. Verse 25 has told us that the anointed ruler, or the anointed one, is the ruler. Now verse 26 explains, the anointed one is cut off, and he is also the ruler, whose people destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end of the city, Jerusalem, will come with a flood until the end, there'll be desolations are decreed. In other words, the Jews are the ones who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. 
Go read Josephus. He explains this. Titus Vespasian comes, his troops surround Jerusalem, and they're laying siege to it, and it gets so bad on the inside. Uh, I've told the story when we did Mark 13. A mother cooked her own child, and when the marauders smelled the meat cooking, they ran in to demand some of the meat, and she said, you can split my baby with me. That's why Jesus, I would argue, said that it was the worst suffering that has ever or will ever happen. I would argue 70 AD is the great tribulation. That's what Matthew 24, Mark 13, etc. are dealing with. And so what happens, though, is the people on the inside are tearing each other apart and literally dismantling the city while Rome is outside. So I would argue, following the grammar of the text, the anointed one is the ruler, the anointed one is cut off, and the ruler's people, the Jews, are going to destroy the city. And they do, physically. But even more than that, it was their sin which brought the destruction on Jerusalem, was it not? Uh, Was it not Caiaphas who prophesied? Let his blood be on us and on our children. Is that not what he said? And judgment for rejecting their Messiah, for cutting him off, was the destruction of the city. And that's why I think verse 27 makes perfect sense in the flow. He, there's only one person introduced so far, it's the anointed one, the ruler, Jesus, he makes a firm covenant with the many for one week. Well, what covenant did Jesus make? The new covenant in his blood with the many. Back to Isaiah 53. He died for many. So I would argue, based off of this, because we don't have to follow wooden literal things, the last seven is the entire time from Jesus' first coming till his second coming. And in the middle of that last time, you have the abomination of desolation, the destruction of Jerusalem, which Jesus then goes on to spell out in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and so forth. There's no reason to introduce a second person in this text as far as the grammar is concerned. There's an anointed ruler. Then it explains his people, and then it explains him making a covenant. So I think that makes perfect sense of the text. But again, if you disagree, God bless you. I'm not going to die for this interpretation. Uh, I can give you three different arguments, and they will all fascinate you, and you'll be like, yep, I, this is my view. Nope, no, it's not. This is my view. Particularly on verse 27, there's all sorts of questions. Is the abomination of desolation, is that just another way of referring to the Jews' sin and their destroying of the the city from the inside? Or is it referring to Titus Vespasian? Or is it referring to a future Antichrist? Yes. I think there's a really good way to understand it as a complementary thing because of how Paul's going to use this language and how Jesus is going to use this language. We don't need to die on these hills. And friends, I would just say it is a sad thing when we spend so much time trying to figure out details for the end, and maybe we've missed out on the fact that this text is about the Lamb who was for sinners slain. That this is about the Messiah who was cut off for the sins of his people. And in so doing, he restored communion with God in union with Christ, because he died for the sins of many. And that's why Daniel prayed, was it not? He prayed, God, hear, forgive, listen, and act. Forgive sin, 
restore your presence to us, which is precisely what Jesus did. Now, little did Daniel know the cost that his forgiveness would require of the father sending his son to live the life that Daniel confessed he didn't live, and yet to die taking the sin and shame which Daniel and we all deserved. You friends, God's act of forgiveness was decreed in eternity past. Jesus was plan A, the crucified one, and yet only for those who confess sin and shame, which so easily entangles us, are we those who receive God's decreed act of forgiveness. And Jesus, by being cut off for his people, made the new covenant in his blood so that all those who repent and trust in him will be saved. Friends, there may be many questions that remain about how God is going to bring history to a close, but with confidence we can say that because Christ came, we know, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in our place, condemned he stood. And he sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless were we, but spotless, Son of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, we are amazed at your word. We're amazed at your plan. The unchanging plan that you made a people knowing it was going to cost your son. And yet you made us knowing we would sin against you. And yet you decreed our forgiveness long ago. And now you call us to come and turn and trust in your son. The one who took the covering for us, for all our sin and shame. What an incredible gift we have in the gospel. Would that be real to us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.